Oh, I've got something I have to do. Excuse me. Let me see here. Let's see. Let's see here. Let me see. Okay. Okay, there you go. Okay, now some of you are saying, what on earth is he doing? And in fact, all of you are saying, why on earth is he doing it? Some of you are cringing, saying, this is nuts. Why would he do that on a Sunday morning at Renaissance? He's taking selfies. Is he crazy? Well, maybe that might be a part of it. I, I, some of you are laughing. Some are cringing. Some are saying, oh, no, we are really going down the tubes here at Renaissance because I'm taking selfies. Selfies, uh, here's a choice. Good or bad? Yes. Uh, selfies, uh, fun or harmful? Yes. Selfies, here to stay? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Selfies, here to stay. I went on the web and saw some pictures of selfies that might interest you. Uh, this first one I call a bad lunch. Oh, no, that's the wrong one. There's a bad lunch. Oh, we got too many lights here. Can't see that poor girl with a popcorn in her mouth. Okay, there's another one saying, I'm watching you. And then there's another one saying, I am so cool. Isn't that, isn't that what he's saying? Yeah. And then there's another one that I put the label on, smiling at Auschwitz. That was on the web too. You can see in the backgrounds this beautiful girl with a wonderful smile are the, are the barracks at Auschwitz where people were put to death, and she has no idea where she is. Or maybe she has an idea where she is geographically, but she has no idea of the torment and the pain and the torture that took place and the shame that has come upon so many people because of that. Selfies. Why do people take selfies? And, and take it a step further than that, why on earth do they put them on the web for everybody to see? Like some, some of these, why would they put them for everybody to see? And they, I, I don't know, I, I've heard, I've heard they're there forever, or at least until Jesus comes. And there's some sense in which that catches up to a lot of people. You know that. So do I. Well, you can bet that there are a lot of reasons why people take selfies. One psychologist I read said that people take selfies because it's a statement of where I am at the moment. I was there. I, I did this. I, we did that. And I can, I can understand that. Some people think, and I'm quick to run to this, this explanation, but it's not necessarily the only one, or maybe even the, the most obvious one, and that is we need to be accepted and approved. And so we put, put pictures on, on, on the web, uh, selfies, so that people can look at us and say, oh, wow, isn't that wonderful? He's so smart, or he's, she's so good looking, or they went there. I'm so jealous of that. I wish I had gone there. I, I'm sure that there's some of that that goes on with selfies and, and the web. But still others, uh, it is likely a sense of our own self-centeredness, something that David Brooks from the New York Times called the big me culture, the big me culture. And, and you know, I sympathize very much with what he's saying because I, I think that's right at the root of a lot of the selfies, especially the ones that go on the web. Uh, I, I won't take these and put them on the web, by the way, so don't worry about your picture being on the web with uh, the picture that I take. Uh, a survey was done of 2,700 uh, plastic surgeons not too long ago, and uh, the plastic surgeons said that their business had increased 
dramatically because of people wanting to look better on social media. You can understand this to some extent, but those 2,700 uh, doctors said that one in three of the people who come to them come because they want to have their eyelids uh, uh, tightened or rhinoplasty, and you know what that is, don't you? <laughs> it's this. It's this. Make this smaller and more attractive for me, won't you please, doc? And uh, in fact, one of the doctors in Manhattan said, people come in and, and they show me their pictures on their iPhone, and they say, you've got to correct this and take care of this. Now, at least some of that, and I wouldn't by any means condemn all of it, is what I'm talking about with the big me culture. I'm not against selfies. I, I'm not criticizing all selfies, please. If you put one on the web and, and we're on Facebook Friends or something and I see it, that's, that's fine. I, I'm not judging why people take uh, selfies and put them on the web. But I am suggesting that we ask the questions. And, and I think one of the questions that we need to ask is, why am I taking this? And then the second one that may be even more important than that one is, why am I putting it on the web for everybody to see? Those questions need to be asked. Well, thousands of years ago, there was a writer who put down a poem that became a part of our Psalms, and that poem is in Psalm 8. And I think if we can get a hold of the idea that I've just learned this last fall uh, and take this idea into the, into the new year of 2016, it's going to transform a number of things in our lives. But let's get to that eventually. And first of all, take a look at Psalm 8, if you would, please. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You let your glory be seen in the heavens above. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established a fortress of strength to still the enemy and quiet the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So that's uh, the psalmist's picture, his poem, written thousands of years ago, that I think has something to say to us in the 21st century, especially as we go into a brand new year. And it gives us a framework for thinking, and I'm going to suggest that you, you adopt this, but not only that you adopt this framework for thinking, but that you likewise take it home to your kids, to your grandkids, to other people around you, whether they believe in the God of creation or not. That, that really has no effect on this. This is really something that we need to be thinking through and, and reflecting in the way that we look at the world around us. 
One of the things that the psalmist obviously says is that we are amazing creatures, <laughs> that God has created us in such a manner that you look at us and you say, they are almost gods. That's really what he's saying in, in Psalm 8. In verse 5, he says, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. I, I need to tell you that that word angels in the Hebrew that's used behind it, translated into angels, is sometimes translated into God. In fact, you'll find that in a number of modern translations because the word that's behind that word angels or God is the word Elohim, and the word Elohim is very often translated God. And in fact, ends with a plural ending. That's why you get angels. But we know that if you take it from the perspective of the New Testament, that the plural is there because of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God existing eternally in three persons. It's an amazing picture. So this may very well be saying in God's intent, you made him a little lower than God. That's amazing. So whichever translation you take, you get this picture that we are almost gods, very close, crowned with glory and honor. That's the kind of treatment that God deserves. But he's given that to men and women, to you and to me. Something else you see in that, that portion is that we are in charge. And that's obvious in the pictures and in the words. Starting with verse 6, he says, You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Now, we haven't always done a good job. I, I, I'm, I'm aware of that. And we're not doing a good job now necessarily. But, but fact is, the way God designed it when he created was he made us almost gods. And as almost gods, we are managers we are over everything that's beneath us to manage it in a way that he wants it managed. Not for selfish purposes, but so that he is honored in the process as the one who created those things. But they are under us, almost God's managers of all that God has given to us. You say, so what? So? So what? Well, let me tell you, so what, when I begin to think about it. Because when I think about us being almost gods, it seems to me, and I think you will agree with this, that the value of human beings goes like this. I mean, it skyrockets. It just goes out of sight. Start thinking of the implications of that. The value of human beings being extended, almost beyond limit. And when I say human beings, I have to say, from those not yet born to those facing the final moments of life here upon earth. I have to say from uh, those who have become followers of Jesus to those who have not and may never. I have to say from those who have a steady job to those who are in prison or who are in poverty. From those who are Republicans to Democrats to, Repu to what else is there? Libertarian to independents to, I don't know, what else? Socialists to, to whatever black to white, to green to purple, to gay to straight. That's what it's talking about. It's not distinguishing a certain group and saying they are almost gods. No, it's saying all men and all women. And if we have to learn anything about that, we have to learn something about how we should treat all men and women if that's indeed the value that God has placed upon them. And think about them. I had a major correction from God the other day. I think it was the Christmas season. We, we spend time maybe once a month, with a couple that's moved to Pennsylvania. They were a part of our church in, in Basking Ridge for a long time, and we're close personal friends. And so um, 
my wife Ilona and uh, this other couple like to shop. I, I don't like to shop. I, I go along. I warn them of coveting. They don't listen to me. <laughs> I talk to them about materialism. They just don't listen. So I bring a book. And I sit and I watch people. Actually, I don't read much. I watch people. Because there's always people to watch. And people are awfully interesting. And so this time that I'm thinking about, we, we uh, separated. We went our ways. And then we met for dinner. And when we got together for dinner, you know, they told me the things they had seen. And I said, oh, it's all... It's all waste. It's all going to burn up in the end. You don't want it, so don't spend any money on it. <laughs> they don't listen, but, but you know, preacher's not, not respected in his home restaurant or something. So, so uh, I tell him what I've been doing. I was watching people, and wouldn't you know it, God spoke through the woman in this couple. She said, you know, I don't like it when I watch people. I said, what do you mean you don't like it? She said, I'm usually critiquing them. You, you know what? When somebody says something that you really convicts your soul, you kind of go like this. Well, that's what I was doing. Because when I watch people, I, I love to see the beautiful people. I admire them. I like their clothing. I like how beautiful she is, how handsome he is, how they look together. A cute little family. Oh, that's wonderful. But then the ones who don't fit that category, you know what I do? I say, oh, his hair's too long, and her, she's got too many tattoos, and, and why has he got that medal, and why are they dressed that way? And And I was deeply convicted because at the same time I was studying Psalm 8. It was kind of like a double barrel at me from both sides. And I realized I can't do that. And the reason why I can't do that is because they're made in the image of God. Marred in some cases, sure, but so am I. Hard to recognize in some cases, yeah, but in my worst times I am too. So it's an attitude adjustment towards those people that was very, very important for me. And, and I'm trying to practice now, and that's what I'm trying to pass on to you because that needs to be practiced by all of us. The other part about being in charge tells me that I am responsible and I'm accountable and, and that I have a purpose in life. And I became a Christian in 1966 in Japan because I didn't have a purpose in life. And I was a young guy, and I, had, I was doing okay, and I was in the Air Force, and I was going to make a go of it and stuff. But, man, I didn't, I, didn't have any, I didn't have any larger story to which I belonged that I could give my life to. And, and I knew there was something missing, but I didn't know what it was. That's what it was. It was purpose. It was a meaning in life. And that's why I became a Christian largely. And sin and those other things came along later. And I realized how, how, how lost I was. But really, it was, it was trying to get some larger story to belong to. Well, that's what I've got if I'm created in the image and likeness of God. And what I do with that, I'm accountable to Him. I'm not off here on my own. So does that matter? Sure, it matters. Of course, it matters. So we own an amazing place in the story that's being painted. Is that enough? Is that all we have to think about? We are amazing. You and I, we are really amazing, aren't we? Is that all? No, that's not all. That's not where the psalmist stops. And that's not the purpose of the psalm, in fact. That's a side purpose of the psalm, to talk about the amazing men and women who exist because God created them that way. No, no, there's, there's more to it because along with me being amazing is that I am, I am deeply bent and broken and I know that I'm deeply bent and broken because I see it comes out in various ways in the midst of life. And, and, and you and I, we, we are the ones who are almost gods who promote ourselves to gods at times and, and you, you and I are the managers given by God in charge uh, who promote ourselves to kings and queens 
And, and if you're honest with yourself, that's, that's very much a part of your story, and that's very much a part of my story. So, so is it enough that we just stop with the amazing nature of men and women because they're created in the image of God? No, that's not enough. You know, if you, have a, if you have an accident with your car and it bends the frame, it may not show very much in terms of the frame, but you get the, get the out, outside damage done, uh, taken care of. You go to the body shop and you get a new fender and you get a new door put on it and, and whatever else needs to be done. But then you take that car out onto the road and it looks beautiful, it looks wonderful, but it keeps going off the road. Why? Well, because the frame is bent. That's, that's why. And my frame is bent. And, and I can make a lot of the things on the outside look okay, but I've still got a bent frame. So, so what do I need to do? I need to go on beyond, as the psalmist does, beyond this picture of how amazing we are. And I learned to learn how to, and this is the idea I want to communicate if I can this morning, I need to learn how to trace it back. Always asking the question, where does this come from? And where, where did I get that? And where did they get that? And where did we get that? And in fact, if, if you're going to do it as the psalmist does it, you're going to say, from whom did I get that? And who gave us that? It's an exceptionally simple idea. I, I don't know why I didn't get it long before now, but maybe I had it in pieces and bits and pieces, but it really came to me last summer. The idea of trace it back. We were at Camp of the Woods. Our family has kind of a reunion at Camp of the Woods every summer. And so we were eating in the dining hall, and it was my turn to pray. And so I prayed, and my grandson, Austin, seven and a half years old, seven, closer to seven at the time, uh, after I prayed, you know, in Jesus' name, I thank God for the food, he turned to me and said, Pappy, why do you thank God for the food? You know, I, I hadn't even thought about it. My prayers are rote sometimes. You know what they are for you. You just say them, and sometimes you say the same words, and God doesn't get bored with it, amazingly. But, but I, I had said, thank you, God, for our food and a few more other things. And he says to me, why do you thank God for, your, for our food? And, and he's professed faith in Christ, but he's just being honest with me. And he's saying, why do you thank God for your food? And I said, well, because God supplies it. And he said, no, he doesn't. I said, what do you mean? He says, the kitchen does. I thought, yeah, it's true, isn't it? Wait a minute. So what did we have to do? Trace it back. Trace it back. Okay, yeah, you're right. The kitchen gave it to the waiter, and the waiter brought it to us, and now we have it on the table and we can enjoy it. But let's go back behind the kitchen. Where did it come from behind the kitchen? Well, it came off the truck. Okay, got that. Okay, where from behind the truck? Where did it come from? Oh, from a warehouse. Okay, where did it come from before that? Oh, it came from a, um, a farm. And where did it come from before? Yeah, that's all it is. It's amazingly simple. But it's the kind of practice that can I mean, just revolutionize our thinking. And, it, and if, we're not, if we're not being too obvious about it, you know, our grandsons and our granddaughters will learn to trace it back. Or at least they'll have a memory of us tracing it back and someday it may come back to them. See, that's the point of Psalm 8. 
We are amazing creatures. God has created something that is far beyond anything that I can completely comprehend or understand, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that we have a great God who has given it to us, given us life and given us everything that we possess, everything that we enjoy. And that's the point of Psalm 8, friends. Not about man, but about God. This Psalm is not about mankind, though mankind is highlighted in it. It is about, it is about God. That's the point. The first and the last statements in the Psalm, in fact, are bookends. And if you have a, a, a Bible open on your phone, you can see that they say the exact same words in the beginning and the end of the psalm. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, you know what it means when you have bookends on the end of a psalm, in the beginning of a psalm. It means that those are the most important ideas to convey. Everything else explains them or amplifies them, but, but they're really the issue. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what he's talking about. That's the point. In fact, if we can go deeper into that, I, I, I would point out a couple of words in there that are extremely important that we recognize. The word Lord is used twice, isn't it? The first time is unusual, isn't it? Because it has all capital letters. Second time doesn't have all capital letters, just the L. Well, there's a distinction that's being made there by the translators because they want us to see this. This is very important. That first word, Lord, is a translation of the word Yahweh. And Yahweh was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And Yahweh means, I am with you. It is the personal, relational uh, commitment of God. That's when you use the word Yahweh, only we translate it Lord with capital letters. So get this. This is, this is, oh, Lord, we are related. <laughs> you know, we have a covenant with each other, and you're going to be my father, and you're going to take care of me. You're my God, and I am your servant. And then the second word is the word Adonai. And the word Adonai is the translation Lord, likewise, but it's distinguished because it means king. It means sovereign. So, so what you have here is this, this dual use of one word in the English, but really two words in the Hebrew. It is, oh, Oh, Lord, Father, you are king. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. That's why it's emphasizing God, not mankind, though mankind is important. If you will think about the logic of these first few verses, too, you'll get the same kind of impact. In the picture that we get from verses 1 through 4, the, the psalmist goes from the greatness of God to the smallness of people. In fact, when he gets from the greatness of God, he goes to a question that naturally reflects what he's thinking. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, here it is. What is mankind that you're mindful of him? What are men and women? We're so small, especially compared to how great the universe is and what you've made. It's so beyond us. Yeah, that's the feel of the psalm. You're great, Lord. You're beyond comprehension that you would care for us when, when we're so small and seemingly insignificant. It's not that men and women are so great, though they are when they look down the ladder at what's below them. Sure, we're great. Compared to all creation, yeah, there's nobody like us. Nothing else there that's self-reflective. Nothing else that relates to God. Everything else runs by rote or by the DNA that's in them. We, we're, we're different. We think. We reflect. We have relationships. So we're wonderful. Oh, oh, but when you get that comparing with God, and God looks down the ladder below him, he sees everybody, including us. 
That's the point of Psalm 8. That's the point of the psalmist's words. The largest, the smallest, including us, reflect his glory. The largest are the heavens, you know? Psalm 19 is another place, first time we won't go there, but if you go home this afternoon and you read Psalm 19, it is an amazing poetic picture of the sun marching forth each day, and it's God's creation that does that. But then it's also the smallest, it's infants and children, and they reflect God's praise from the largest to the, to the smallest. I read this in a book, it was just struck me as being so true. Infants are not only wonderful illustrations of God's power and skill in their physical constitution, instincts, and early developed intelligence, but also in their spontaneous admiration of God's works by which they put to shame or silence men who rail against God. Children just... Children. Jesus said you have to become like children. Part of the children business is just accepting from the hand of God with a sense of gratitude. Amy told me about a little boy with kidney failure. I think it's somebody she knows that, that she's in contact with. The child had only one kidney to begin with and was going through kidney failure. So they began looking for a match, a donor that would work out for him and match in every way that was possible. Um, they found out that his mother was the best match for him. And so the surgeons considered taking uh, the mother's one of the mother's two kidneys and inserting it in the child. But the major problem with that was that the child was small. He was a little kid. And the mom was large, full-grown woman. And the size of the kidney couldn't possibly fit into the, into the cavity for the child. So they could take one out, but it was tiny. Put this other one in, it was too large. Surgeon said, no, it'll be okay. They put the kidney from the mom, too large, but squeezed it into the cavity of the abdominal cavity of the child. And this just, this just blows my mind. They squeezed it into the cavity of the child, and, and the kidney, as time went on, began to reduce in size to fit the rest of the child's body. But that's not all. As the child grew, the kidney grew. Now, what do you do with that? You trace it back. You know, we're so prone to say, oh, man, this surgeon is so great. Well, yeah. And, and understanding how to do it is so wonderful. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's good. Please don't stop there. You trace it back. That's what you do with that. And your mind begins to focus on the goodness of God and the grace of God and the power of God. Now, I, I know some of you are saying, I don't do that naturally. And I get that. I, a lot of us were born and raised in the modern era. And the modern era taught us uh, to see what man is doing, you know. Look at what science can do. In fact, there were times when people thought, oh, this is, the, this is all we need. We're going we're gonna to live forever because we're going to get the DNA straight and we're going to be able to uh, relate to each other and be no more hunger, no more problems causing war. And so everything will be fine because we have the answers in science. And I was raised in that, and I never accepted that, of course. But, but still, the thinking is there to stop with mankind. The thinking is natural for me to just stop there and say, oh, man, isn't it, isn't it amazing what science can do? 
Isn't it terrific what medicine can do? And that's okay, but not stop there. I'm saying what I need to learn how to do on a regular basis is I need to trace it back. So what do I do if I'm stuck in this modern mindset or any other mindset and I don't normally trace it back to God? Let me, let me give you some steps that I'm trying to work through in my own life now. This is only a few months old for me, so I'm not there. I, I admit it, but, but I, I want to share with what I'm learning about the whole subject. And, and one of the things I, I must do is I must learn to be a learner. Now, that's basic, isn't it? You know that. You want to learn physics, you have to set aside time to learn physics. And if you want to learn how to play the piano, you'd better set a time, aside time to practice that and to, uh, to learn the things that you need to learn in order to learn how to play the piano. If you're not willing to do that, then you're not serious about playing the piano. Yeah? yeah. And, and it, in, in fact, if you're going to do that, you're going to look in the right places. And the right places with a piano is in an instruction book or video or with a teacher, and you're going to be there with that teacher. And then when it comes to tracing it back, you're going to go to those places that naturally cause a sense of awe in your heart and your life. That means go on vacation. How's that? That good news? Yeah. Go on vacation. Now, you don't have to go on vacation. That's the amazing part. You just need to go out on a starry night and look up. Get away from the lights from your city or your town, if you can, and look up. And start counting the stars and trace it back to the God who made those stars. Okay? All right. You, you just need to go to, to the places like the shore, which is close enough to do, and sit there a while and think about the waves and the, the amazing power that's in that wave and the regularity of that wave and the tides that come in and the tides that go out and allow it to trace back to the God who made the waves. That's, that's all I'm talking about. Um, Rob Gallucci sent me a Facebook friend thing for, uh, what is it, Wild America Photography. <laughs> It's just amazing. All kinds of people contribute to this wild America photography. And if you look at these pictures that people are taking, you know, best picture I can take, I took on my selfie. I know nothing more about photography than that. But, but I'll tell you what, if I can look at that, that uh, wild bird in the wild, or if I can look at uh, uh, that, that tiger, or if I can look at that beautiful uh, flower, and, and then not leave it there, but, but go ahead and trace it back, I will learn to do this. I will learn to do this. And then practice it, of course. You know, you just have to do it over and over again because we don't, we don't straighten this up in, in just one time. You're not going to get this out of one sermon. I hope you get the idea, and I hope you're inspired to do it. I hope you, you're, you're motivated to do it. But this is not the end of the process because I have to practice it. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, says, we have established bad thought habits. And we have. And when I think of bad thought habits, I think of lust and I think of... Uh, selfishness, and I think of coveting and all those other things, and, and they naturally come to mind. But, but friends, I'm telling you, I think, I think I've discovered that, that if I can get this bad thought habit of stopping with man and how smart and cool man is and start tracing it back, it will lay a foundation to get the other bad thought habits out. Because it's a foundational principle that I walk with a sense of wonder that God has created and God has provided and God has given and that flavors everything and that colors everything. If I can just learn to do that in a foundational sense, I practice it. If I'm learning a new language, I practice it. 
you know? If I'm learning a new language, I practice it until I begin to think in those, that, that language and I begin, to, I begin to dream in that language and I'm told that if you can do that, then you really got the language because it's so second nature to you. And, and what I'm looking for is the day when this becomes second nature to me and I'm going to practice it until it does. And then one last thing I'm going to do and I would urge you too is to share it. You share it because you reinforce it in your own mind and you also help other people to see what they might not naturally see or acknowledge. Trace it back. Yeah, yeah, God gave us, God gave us that food from the kitchen and the waiter and, and, and God gave us that food from the truck driver and from, uh, from the factory or whatever it was that produced it for us and canned it. And, and then, then God gave us uh, farms and, and then who gave us, who gave us what makes it grow? God gave us what makes it grow, Austin. That's why I thank God for the food. And I'm learning to trace it back. You know what? People who don't believe what they need, most of them don't need their arguments about this or that. They just need somebody who really believes this to say it as a natural part of their conversation without forcing it on them. What, what people who don't believe need is somebody who is somewhat sane, and hopefully that is most of us, referring to God on a natural basis. Not because they're pounding the Bible or they're, they're twisting arms, but just because that's what it is. Friends, this is not rocket science. And, and I'll tell you what, this is not hard. What this requires is our commitment to do it so that we're the people who learn to be learners. So that we are frequently saying, Lord, our Lord, how, how majestic, and insert your own translation, how, how mind-blowing, how awesome are you? I was thinking the other day that you and I can choose in life to be the bat boy at the World Series, thinking that it's because of us that everybody came and filled the seats in the stadium. Or we can bring the focus back to the one who deserves the focus, the real reason why we're giving thanks, the real reason why we're living, the real reason why we have this stuff, the real, real reason why this works, the real reason why the planets haven't collapsed on us, the real reason is the Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Take it home. Start putting it into effect. Husbands and wives, parents and kids, grandparents and kids, friends and friends. Talk about it. Make it a part of your, your daily conversation and your daily thinking for the glory of God. Let's pray together, please. Lord, it's been a few months that I've been learning this process and I, I am not there. <laughs> It just reminds me of how, how much I'm prone to go back to, to men, mankind, to men and women. And uh, I know you want me to go further, and I, I believe you want my friends here at, at Renaissance to go further too and to enter into 2016 with a commitment that we're going to learn how to trace this back, and it's going to become second nature for us, and we're going to trust God to, to guide us in these things. So do your work in us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, friends.